Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. And this week, we have a great guest that's going to tackle, well, help us tackle a pretty big subject. One of the questions that keeps coming up is why are people with mental illness often incarcerated? And specifically, it seems to hit people with schizophrenia the most, at least that's what the data shows. And while Vin and I aren't qualified to talk about it alone, we have asked Dr. Joe Parks, who is the medical director for the National Council on Behavioral Health, to kind of share the information, the statistics, and hopefully Uh, help us kind of break this down in a way that we can understand and and maybe even work together to do something about this. Dr. Parks, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Before we get started, let's learn a little bit about you. We're assuming that one does not just wake up one morning and become the medical director for the National Council. Certainly, certainly. Well, after I finished my psychiatry training in Boston, I I became uh, the first emergency psychiatry fellow in the country over in Cincinnati. And I was working in the ER uh, just about every evening and also doing some programs for people that were homeless in shelters and on the streets in downtown Cincinnati. After that, I became the medical director of uh, their local state hospital, uh, and after that, I went to Chicago and was medical director of a hospital there also. Uh, but for about 20 years, I was medical director for the Missouri Department of Mental Health. And we operated, oh, about 11 different facilities across the whole state of Missouri, 75,000 people under care at our contracted community mental health centers. And I've continued to see patients, uh, both in uh, community mental health centers, uh, and university site clinics, but for the last 15 years, I've been seeing my patients in community health centers, primary care practices for the underinsured and the uninsured. Uh, and there's a lot of people with serious mental illness going to those uh, community health centers. Right now, I work, I see my patients in Columbia, Missouri, but I do my administrative and policy work in Washington, D.C., Excellent. So, so sometimes I see my patients by telepsychiatry and sometimes in person. Awesome. That is very interesting. You know, we, we are sponsored by BetterHelp.com, uh, which is online therapy. Old school people are like, well, you can't get medical help online. But we, we kind of disagree with that. What's your opinion on this? Do you think telepsychiatry is a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, I think it's a good thing. I don't think it's the only thing, but it certainly is something that every clinic should have in its toolkit especially in rural areas, it saves travel time. I remember at the beginning of my career, I would go to a clinic in rural Missouri, and it would take me about an hour and a half to drive there and an hour and a half to drive back. And so that's three hours of time I could have been seeing patients if I had been doing it by telepsychiatry. We have a pretty big push for telepsychiatry here in California. Um, as, As I'm sure anybody who's looked at a map knows, California is a very lengthy state. And pretty much everything above Sacramento is considered rural for the most part. So you're absolutely right. The, the rural communities really do need the telepsychiatry very badly. And I'm glad to say that they are starting to use it. You know, I saw, I just did a little telepsychiatry this morning. I did my clinic yesterday for about four or five hours. And there was uh, one gentleman who was starting to have a lot of problems with psychosis. And he was uh, drinking real heavily. 
and I couldn't quite persuade him to go into the hospital. He had to talk to his family one more time, and I didn't think he was so dangerous that he should be forced. But because it was telepsychiatry, I could, you know, we arranged for some uh, friends to be with him all night, and he had his conversation with his family. He came back to the clinic in the morning, and even though I'm in Washington, D.C., and he's back in Missouri, I was able to, you know, just turn on the telepsychiatry unit, and he and I had a conversation, and uh, he, he went off to the hospital where he could get uh, some, uh, some good care. Fantastic. One of the things that we're fond of saying here on the Psych Central show is that we want to be able to use all the tools in our toolbox. It's not to say that that tool is for you. If, if that's not going to help uh, you get well, then it's a tool that you can ignore. But, you know, so often we're like, well, I don't like it, so I don't want anybody to have it. And that's certainly something that we'd like to see change, it's especially in mental health, because, you know, there, there's a lot of things that scare a lot of people that people work to advocate away from others. Uh, and we've seen this a lot. I, I'm sure that you've You've heard of the anti-psychiatry movement, which of course doesn't like medication or doctors in general. This may be a path for some, but it's not a path for everybody. And we'd really like to see people get on board with uh, allowing people to choose their own recovery path uh, rather than saying, hey, this works for me, so everybody has to do it this way. Uh, as a medical director, do you see a lot of that? Is that something that, that occurs in your advocacy? What's sort of your viewpoint of all of that? Well, you know, I think people deserve a full range of information and opinions. And some people just have to uh, try going it without medication and prove to themselves whether they need it or not. In fact, when I talk to all my patients, I say, you know, well, most of my patients at some point decide to stop their medication. They, they either don't like some of the side effects or they're, they're not really sure they still need it. Because if it works wonderful, you can start wondering if you're not cured. And I bet you sooner or later you're going to want to stop it, and I, I just ask you to discuss it with me instead of surprising me by stopping first and telling me later. So it sounds like you're really big on participatory medicine. You, you really like to, to work with your clients or your patients rather than this is what works, do it, and if you don't do it, go away. You know, we, we sort of have some old, you know, patriarchal kind of concepts in, in medication, which is follow the doctor's orders. But it, it seems like you're more on the other side, which is to work with your patient to find what works for, I, I don't want to say both well, of you. I'm, but certainly, I'm, certainly, I'm certainly more expert than my patient on the illnesses in general, on schizophrenia as an illness, as a disease. But you know, that individual patient is the expert on their particular form and instance of schizophrenia or whatever other mental illness they have. They're the person that gets to experience it uh, every day, usually often during the day. Uh, and they know all kinds of things about it that I don't know about their particular form. I, I need their input just like they need my input. And uh, my, my goal, you know, when somebody's new to their illness, then they need a lot more direction. But as people get more experience, they, they really just need consultation because they know a lot of what works for them already. They just need somebody to bounce it off and maybe you have something new they can try if the old things weren't working. I really like how you phrased that. Uh, thank you so much. Let's talk about prison, shall we? Let's just jump right in. Let's yeah. just jump right in. So I understand that statistically, of all of the people in, in prison with, with mental health issues, those with schizophrenia seem to outnumber any other condition. Can you tell us why that might be? Well, it's two factors. People with serious mental illness in general, including schizophrenia, have higher rates of substance use disorders. And when we passed all the no tolerance and three strikes you're out laws and all those laws, we ended up 
impacting uh, people with mental illness more because they're more likely to have substance use disorders. Now, the second thing is we forget that a lot of schizophrenia, the biggest impairment is actually not hallucinating, not seeing things, uh, hearing things. It's actually impairment of, of cognition, of thinking. People with schizophrenia have trouble concentrating, paying attention, organizing themselves, expressing themselves. So when your average person is caught with some marijuana on them, they, they, they often have it together enough not to say anything or to, you know, to, to not make it worse than it already is. And a person with schizophrenia just doesn't have those filters and that judgment in place. And they don't know how to manage themselves in their interaction with the law and their lawyers to minimize consequences of their legal situation. So on the one hand, they're more likely to have a substance use disorder. And on the second hand, they're less likely to be able to manage it in a way that doesn't land them in jail and a thwart of the law. That's interesting that you brought up. One of the stories that I hear often is that people with schizophrenia are also more likely to be homeless. Now, please correct us if we're wrong about any of this. We hear a lot that people with schizophrenia are more likely to be homeless. And there's there's just certain things that, that come with homelessness. And one of the things that comes up is, you know, the, the police will, you know, ask people to move along, for example. And we'll just go with that example. You're sitting on a bench and the, the police know you're homeless and they want you to move along so that, you know, well, frankly, non-homeless people can use the park. We, we won't fall down the rabbit hole on the debate of, of why some people are more entitled to the park bench than others, but you know, the police come up and they ask you to move along. Now, now police are scary, and you know, oftentimes even if they're you know being polite, they're still a, a scary figure. Now, you're somebody that that is that is homeless. You're you're living with schizophrenia, as you said. You're not seeing things correctly, and you say no. So now you've disobeyed a police officer. Uh, police officer is a little more forceful. So now you get up to run trying to get up to run, you, you brush past the police officer, this becomes assault on a police officer. So something minor, something as minor as just getting up and moving along uh, becomes an assault charge. Do you see things like this uh, in your advocacy where, where minor infractions sort of get blown up into you know, felonies and, and felonies that are scary, you know, assault on a police officer, uh, resisting arrest, things of that. So something as simple as, hey, move along becomes a big deal. Well, you know, that, that is part of the nature of the illness when people are having uh, problems with paranoia, uh, which can be a little different than the problems with concentration and attention. Things that aren't threatening to your average person take on threatening implications to them. And, you know, there's two responses. There's fight and there's flight, and neither one will get you in trouble with the police, either running or fighting, if you can't control your fear. Even people that aren't mentally ill who are homeless end up with more legal problems. You know, they have trouble finding places to be and to sleep that doesn't ultimately end up in being someplace they aren't supposed to be, either on public or private property. Uh, and they're more likely to have complaints lodged against them just because they look funny and people feel vaguely threatened. Here in California, they've instituted what they're calling the camping laws to prevent you know, large encampments of, of homeless gathering together in individual places. Do you have any comments on that? I hope they're not going to go to the Boy Scout Jamboree. They don't have that big a prison. <laughs> yes, it, it's okay to camp those, if you're middle boys, class. But and I've been to Boy Scout Jamborees, and they act pretty agitated at times. The interesting thing for me when, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm from Ohio, uh, Vin lives in California. They call it camping. You know, not not homelessness, not having a place to go. It was it's it's almost insulting in the way the law is written. I obviously understand it from the 
a middle class perspective where I just kind of think it's awful. Uh, but talking to folks who are homeless about how they feel about this, they don't think that they're camping. They, they think that they're trying to survive. Uh, and to have it painted with this brush is, is sort of demoralizing for them in, in a way that uh, is more demoralizing than, you know, not having, you know, food and shelter and, and basic human needs. It, it's an inefficient solution. Uh, we could really give them some reasonable housing for what it costs us to put them in jail and feed them also. It's more expensive in general. You know, I remember going to a a scientific meeting in Toronto and I was getting driven from the airport to downtown. I was looking around. I remarked to my cab driver, I said, geez, I don't see any homeless people here in Toronto. And you know, a city this size in America would have homeless people all over. What, what are they doing in Canada to address this problem of homelessness? And he turned around at a stoplight and said to me very slowly, like I was a third grader or something, we give them housing. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that's red. Yeah, it, it's such an obvious solution, but for some reason, our country isn't willing to do that. We really tend to look at punishing people with mental health or addiction problems for what society perceives as bad behavior, uh, rather than trying to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, curb the bad behavior. It really is the difference between a, a parent who tries to teach their child not to do the bad behavior and runs interference versus a parent who stands back, waits for their child to, to act out. The point you're making is it's better, it's better to assist people to learn how to manage their illness and to take care of them until they learn that than to play a game of gotcha, to wait for them to screw up and then say, oh, you screwed up, gotcha. Right. And we've also found that the, the gotcha doesn't work. Waiting for somebody to screw up and then punishing them or waiting for somebody to break the law and then punishing them doesn't help them not break the law again. We, we find that they just find themselves in the same position over and over and over again, rather than addressing the underlying concern. Uh, in your example there, we provide housing. Arresting people for being homeless doesn't stop them from being homeless. Now they're just homeless with a criminal record. They're already all pretty clear that being homeless is a bad idea. They just don't have a plan B. They don't know how not to be homeless. And saying, oh, we're going to punish you for being homeless doesn't teach them how not to be homeless. So what solution do we have here? What can we do? You know, the, the solutions that have been proven to work for decades is to, is to get them good medication treatment, and oral is great. Long-acting formulations are better because you only have to take them once a month. And when people have cognitive problems and are homeless, it's hard to keep your pills straight and remember to take your medication. So something you can take once a month is great. And the second thing we give them is what you call case management or community support. You take a person who's there to assist and advise them, help them figure out where they can get housing in their community, help, help figure out and get in the social habits of keeping the place clean so they don't get evicted, learning how to interact with their neighbors so they don't scare them and get into arguments. And that is really the backbone of the business that national council members do nationally. They are keeping millions of people off the streets and out of jail every day. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. 
Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash psych central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. Betterhelp.com forward slash psych central. One of the things that comes up in mental health advocacy a lot and that we hear from family members is that what you have just suggested won't work because my loved one doesn't know they're sick. Uh, there is some truth to this, but there's, there's also a lot of misinformation in, in that statement as well. What have you seen along those lines? Well, I don't find it in, for many of the people I work with, terribly helpful to focus on what their diagnosis is, uh, whether it's schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, or talking to them at length about having a mental illness. I, I try and figure out why they think they're feeling miserable, which is often because they, in their view, their problem is they can't sleep and everything irritates them too fast. And I offer them the treatment. I say, well, you know, if you, if you take this medication, things won't irritate you as much and you'll sleep better. You have to frame it in terms of what they think their suffering is. And it doesn't matter what fancy medical name we get stuff. And they don't need to know whether it's a brain disease or, you know, what the cause is. They, they just want to find a way to feel better. And if you offer them a way to feel better in terms that's the way they think about their suffering, a lot more of them are okay. We just kind of never get around to talking about that other stuff, and it doesn't matter a hoot. Dr. Parks, you mentioned that the National Council is, is doing all of these things that, that work. How do people who need the help get to you, or how do you get to them? How are they chosen? What's the process? What really drew me to the National Council is, you know, the, oh, their members are really embedded in their local communities. These are healthcare organizations that you know in your town. You know that this is the organization that's here to take care of these kind of problems, to help people with these kind of illnesses. So it's local reputation is what gets people to them. The clergy know who and where they are. The police know who and where they are. And you just have to ask a couple people that you know that are friends or neighbors, and they'll say, oh, you know, uh, I, I remember Judy had that problem, and she went over to Sunny Hill Center, and Judy's okay now. I live in Columbus, Ohio, which is a pretty big city. It's not rural Ohio, and we don't have a presence from the National Council on Behavioral Health, at least not a significant one. Is this something that, you know, the National Council is, is still expanding, still growing? Because these services sound fantastic. How can we bring them to my state, to my community, and how can our listeners do the same? How can we help advocate for your services? Well, the National Council is not a service provider itself. The National Council is a membership organization for the local mental health clinics, the local community mental health centers across the nation. So our members are the individual community mental health centers, but we are not actually service providers. So although you don't hear our, our name, the community mental health centers and the mental health clinics and addiction centers in your community probably know our name, and you might be surprised how many are members. I don't have the membership list but I bet you I could pull up a number in Columbus, Ohio and get back to you. I bet you could too. How long ago did the National Council begin and what's its mission? Give us the history of the National Council, what your past goals were and what your future goals are. 
So the National Council has been around for several decades, but I tell you, in the last 10, 15 years, it has been growing gangbusters, and that is because of the increased emphasis and increased realization of the importance of behavioral health services. It's also because we've really focused on supporting our members, on giving them technical assistance on how they can implement the newest treatments in their community, how they can change some of their business methods, like how they do the scheduling so that they're more efficient and get more people in. Uh, A lot of our national political advocacy to get better federal funding, things like supporting the parity law, things like defending Medicaid from the huge cuts that were being discussed in the previous year, things like the Excellence in Mental Health Act, which is funding comprehensive community behavioral health centers. And this started last July, and the centers doing this have added 1,100 new clinicians. They all now have evening and weekend hours. They all have crisis systems. They all offer substance use disorder treatment services. And this is an eight-state demonstration project that, is, uh, that was abdicated for passed into law and is now the new emerging model to get comprehensive treatments. You know, when people have a serious mental illness, they often have a substance use problem like we talked about, and they usually have multiple medical problems too. People with mental illness are more medically ill than people without, and they need a center that can address the whole person, not just one illness or one treatment at a time. One of the things that we quite often hear Um, is that we don't have enough inpatient psychiatric beds for the number of people that we have who need them. The problem with that statement is that it really depends a lot on what community services are available in your particular area. Because if you've got plenty of community services, then you don't need as many inpatient beds. A lot of our communities don't have that, so, so clearly they'll need the beds. But the broader our community services are, the better for everyone, really. What are the, um, do you have any big pushes forward coming up with the National Council? Any, any new plans to expand in a, a different area? Well, you know, uh, one of the groups that uh, we have here at the National Council is we have a group of medical directors from organizations nationally called the Medical Directors Institute. And we do uh, policy papers and technical assistance work. And the one, the one we did last year was on access to psychiatric services. And that's available on our website. So if you go to the National Council for Behavioral Health website and look up Medical Director Institute, you can find the psychiatric shortage paper. And it describes this. And, you know, it is, it is a growing shortage. The average age of psychiatrists in this country is in their mid-50s. Other medical specialists are in their mid-30s. Uh, and people have trouble getting in to get any care at all. And in that report, we give a, a wide range of specific changes that would improve that access. Uh, changes that could be done by insurance companies, changes that could be done by agencies, everything from uh, how you set the rates to how you handle the scheduling uh, to how to work in teams. So that's, that's an example of the kind of work we do. It's kind of in the grass, it's nuts and bolts, but healthcare is complicated. And if any of your listeners hear uh, somebody saying they have a simple solution to healthcare, they're probably wrong. The solutions are going to be complicated. <laughs> I like what you Don't said there. Don't trust simple. Don't trust simple. I like, I like it. That, that could be a bumper sticker. That, that's great. One of the things that we're seeing, especially in rural areas, is psychiatric nurse practitioners, uh, people going to 
people getting medical care more from general practitioners than psychiatrists. You know, I, I was really a firm believer in, hey, if you have a major mental illness, you need to go to a psychiatrist. Just like if you have cancer, you need to go to an oncologist. Of course, then I discovered as an advocate about the shortage. How do you feel about the movement of psychiatric practitioners and more and more general practitioners being tasked with this? Obviously, I think we can all agree that it would be great if we had enough psychiatrists, but we don't. So can you, can you speak on that a little bit? We only have half the number of psychiatrists that we need, and we're never going to train enough to get totally on top of the problem. And our, our uh, paper fully endorses having more advanced practice nurses that are specialized in psychiatry. You know, there's another growing movement of physician's assistants. You see physician's assistants working with surgeons, working with obstetricians regularly. And there are more, there's a, a new growth of uh, physician assistance programs that have a psychiatric specialty, and that, that's another opportunity. Now, in my own practice, for the last 15 years, I've been practicing in a primary care clinic. And I'm able to impact a lot more patients there than if I was at a community mental health center. That's because I'm acting as a consultant to about eight or ten primary care practitioners. And I, I give them advice. Sometimes I don't even see the patient. The, the, the case is presented to me, and I give them a couple things they can do that's likely to help, and they go and try and implement it. More importantly, as we practice together, they see how I do things. They know how I treat. They know the first three things I do to treat bipolar disorder. I don't get referrals for the first new bipolar patient. They try the first three things that they've been watching me do for 10 years, and if those don't work, then they might ask me or send me the patient. And I think one of the major solutions is to get primary care and psychiatry and other mental health specialties like psychologists in the same practice together, not in different parts of the same clinic. I think when you're integrated, being integrated means that the behavioral health, the psychiatrist or psychologist can't get to the bathroom without walking past the primary care offices and the primary care doctor can't get to the coffee room without walking past the behavioral health practitioners. That's integration when you're bumping into each other. There is a major difference between living with mental illness with private insurance and living with mental illness in the public system. Uh, and there's a, a third category of you're not even in the public system. You don't have you don't have Medicaid. You don't have Medicare. You don't have uh, you know welfare benefits. You're, you're literally uninsured. Uh, those are the three different journeys for people with mental illness. I suppose there is a fourth one, which is independently wealthy. But uh, you, you know, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you know, I, I was at the top of the list in that I had money in the bank, I had supportive parents, I had health insurance, and you know, I got Cadillac care. And what's amazing to me about that Cadillac care is how sucky I thought it was at the time. Uh, but, you know, I was seeing a psychiatrist every six weeks. Uh, I was in an outpatient treatment program. And then when I became an advocate, I realized that, oh, my, uh, what I considered to be, you know, sucky was actually arguably the best. I mean, short of having the money to have a psychiatrist follow me around, I really don't think I could have gotten better care. And even I found that lacking. How can we get everybody to get the same level of care? Yeah, you know, so I think to give, it's going to be tiered care. Some people really can have their issues initially addressed okay by primary care. Some people need brief consultation with psychiatry, with psychologists, and some people need more ongoing regular interaction. 
what is inefficient is to have the psychiatrist doing routine follow-up visits for people that are basically okay and stable. And what really doesn't make sense is having the psychiatrist spending a lot of time doing administrative work, like getting uh, authorization for medications to be dispensed or writing treatment plans to get more visits authorized or making photocopies, transmitting records. You know, in too many community mental health center clinics and private mental health clinics, the psychiatrist ends up doing a lot of administrative work they should hire a bachelor level person to do because it's just inefficient. It, it, keep, it takes away from uh, patient time. But, uh, you know, I think you're wrong in thinking that it's, it's really that good in commercial insurance. You know, about 44% of the psychiatrists in this country are in cash-only practice, and they're, they're able to get rates routinely of two to $300 an hour in cash-only. Wow. And commercial insurance pays half of that. And you can talk to your friends in New York City and ask them if they if they can find a psychiatrist covered by their insurance plan. I had no idea. Yeah, that's, they can. that's incredible. Psychiatrists are second only to dermatologists by the portion in cash only practice. Now, why is the reason for this? The reason is that demand has gone up astronomically. And supply actually has stayed level. The population's gone up. So the number of psychiatrists per capita in this country dropped 10% in the last 13 years. Whereas the number of all doctors stayed even, neurologists went up 15%, but psychiatrists are down 10% per capita per 100,000 population. And demand is way up because more people have coverage for behavioral health, more people understand that the treatments want it, work and they want the treatments. So when demand goes up and supply is down, what did your economics class teach you? Price goes up. But the insurance companies and Medicaid and Medicare have not reset the prices consistent to compete with the cash market. So if the same thing had happened with obstetricians, you think we'd let this many women give birth without any assistance? Oh, of course not. Of course not. Society values parenthood and families in a way that they don't value people with mental illness. Uh, because I think there's such a misunderstanding. I, I would say that the average person doesn't believe someone with mental illness can be well. Uh, they, they think that we are in a constant state of, uh, you know, suffering, acting out. And of course, we often get blamed for violence. So the fact that the general public doesn't believe that we can ever get well doesn't allow them to put a large amount of time, energy, or money into the things that would help us get well. Uh, so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and the, the, the treatments for mental illness are about the same as the treatments for asthma. Uh, people with asthma still have asthma. They still wheeze occasionally. They, they just do it a whole lot less. People with treatment for depression still get depressed, just not as bad, and they can still move around. It's actually better than treatment for diabetes. Most people with diabetes will die because of the diabetes. Most people with mental illness will die because of diabetes or heart disease. This has been great information, and... You know, I, I'm looking at my list of questions and I have about a hundred more, which means the show would have to be like nine hours. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to just... I think just... you'd lose your words. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we might as well. Uh, Dr. Parks, you, you've been amazing. Uh, definitely explained things to Vin and I and our listeners that, you know, we just, we didn't have a, a full grasp of before. Given everything that we've covered and, and everything that we've talked about, are there any last words that you may have to tie anything up? We don't want to cut you off and say the show's over if you have any additional points that you'd like to make. 
you know, uh, I, I think the major point I'd like to, I'd like to make is that uh, people should be active politically in both their communities and nationally about the importance of people getting treatment for mental illness and substance use disorders. This is a huge need in our nation, and it needs adequate resources in both the Medicare program and the Medicaid program and in commercial insurance. And we should all let our elected officials know how important that is to us. Excellent point. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And remember, you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private online counseling anytime, anywhere, just by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We will see everyone next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at gabehoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counsellor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at vincentmwales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. There are few words more misunderstood and misused than OCD. Imagine having unwanted thoughts stuck in your head all day no matter how hard you try to make them go away, and then having to pretend that everything is okay despite having to feel crippled inside. That's OCD. One in 40 people suffer from it globally, but there's hope. If you have OCD and need help, you can get better with specialized treatment. NoCD offers effective, affordable, and convenient treatment for OCD and is covered by many major insurance plans. Go to NoCD.com to learn more. That's NoCD.com.